Chicago Bears back in their glory days, uh, what they used to do is um, uh, a lot of times the team, even on home games, would come to the hotel the night before the game. They would have a film showing the next, the highlight film of the team that they were playing the next day as a way of building up some hatred towards them. Uh, oftentimes they would do chapel right there in the hotel, but oftentimes after that movie, before they started chapel and then the players had the option of leaving or staying for chapel, uh, Mike Ditka would give a little talk. Now, uh, one, one particular day, John Cassius, who was the, the chaplain, tells a story that uh, Mike Ditka spotted 338-pound uh, William Refrigerator Perry sitting there, and he, he just walked over and he said, hey, William, uh, when I get done with my talk before we start chapel, I'd like you to lead us in the Lord's Prayer. And uh, Jim McMahon, who was kind of the renegade, uh, free-spirited quarterback of the the Chicago Bears at the time, uh, kind of nudged John Cassius, the, the chaplain, and he said, uh, I'll bet you he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. And Cassius said, uh, everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. And McMahon says, I'll bet you 50 bucks he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. So Ditka finishes his talk. He says, okay, guys, I want you to remove your caps. I've asked the fridge to, to lead us in the Lord's Prayer. And William Perry bows his head and says, now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> I pray the Lord my soul to keep. At which point John Cassius is thinking about here I am the chaplain and I'm betting in a chapel service that he, did, that he does know the Lord's Prayer. When he says I was a little nudge and Jim McMahon leaned over to me and said, I guess I owe you 50 bucks. I didn't think he knew it. <laughs> so. Now. I raise this because there is a lot of confusion about the Lord's Prayer in our day. And here's what I want to do. I want us to probe just this, the next phrase of the Lord's Prayer. Last week we looked at our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This week, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I hope that uh, as, I mean, all of us have prayed that at some point or another. But I, I, I don't know about you. Sometimes I've wondered exactly what is the kingdom and why is it so important that Jesus would say you should make this as a part of your prayer. Now, we don't use kingdom very much. We use it with our kids, the magic kingdom. Uh, this week, we were very conscious of the kingdom because of the referendum in Scotland to try and break away from the United Kingdom. But in a sense, whenever we think about kingdom, we think about a geographic place, something that has boundaries. And so... One of the things that's interesting in the Greek when it uses the word kingdom is that it's not so much a place as it is the rule or the reign of a particular monarch. And it's really interesting because some translations of the, of the Greek here, when they, when they put it in English, they don't say the kingdom of God. They say the reign of God or the rule of God in order to bring out this idea of what it means. Now... In Hebrew poetry, many times what they will do is they will say a line and then they'll say a line right after it that kind of highlights the line before. Year, a couple years ago when, when we were doing the Psalms, I talked about uh, how this goes. For example, in the Proverbs, it might say, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So a haughty spirit before a fall refers back to the pride goes before destruction. And so what it's doing is, is it's emphasizing what was said at first. Another example would be in the Psalms, Psalm 1628. It says, a perverse man stirs up dissension 
And a gossip separates close friends. So a gossip separates close friends is, is going back to a perverse man stirs up dissension. So here's what a lot of scholars believe that Jesus is doing. When he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, he's teaching that the kingdom of God is a place where God's will is done. You say, well, how is it done? Done how? Well, what's it, how is it done in heaven? What would that be like? Well, in heaven, speculating, I would imagine it's always done. It's instantly done. It's constantly done. It's completely done. It's humbly done. And it's probably joyfully done. So, does, you know, how does this world, or I guess if we want to get a little more specific, or I remember my, my high school history teacher used to say, if you want to get pacific, what's it like in your world? How do you measure your world in terms of how it's done in heaven? God's will being done in your world. And that's why I think we need to pray it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I'll tell you why we have a tough time. I can barely imagine that. I can't get my arms around that. And so this is what the writers of Scripture do, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is they use imagery to describe to us who are finite, fallen human beings what this might look like. And, and you'll know that this imagery is to, is to put across an idea. So let me just, uh, I, by the way, leaders do this all the time. They talk in imagery. You know, somebody says, if I'm elected, my administration will get this country moving. Now, do they mean literally that there's going to be physical movement in our country? No, they don't. It's an image of progress or an image of growth. And so scripture writers use the same kind of imagery to convey what life would be like if God's kingdom was actually reigning in this situation. And Jesus says, this is what you're supposed to pray for. The kingdom to come as it is, uh, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I want to look at several different images from scripture today to try to get a flavor of what might be behind this truth. And my goal is that when we walk out of here today, that you will pray with greater intelligence about what it means to pray in the kingdom of God. And I'm going to use, uh, I'm going to end this message, by the way, because I'm, I'm going to ask you a specific question. Will you become a kingdom prayer? And so the Bible uses these images in relationships to all, all different aspects of life. The first one would be this, the sphere of economics and human need. You know, the Apostle John writes in Revelation chapter 7, verse 16, about the day when God's kingdom will be fully realized. And he says, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. Now, what would that be like? The elimination of hunger. No more pictures of kids with swollen bellies. No mother trying to scrounge around to find enough food to feed her child. So just so they could survive another day. I heard... Uh, just recently, uh, I was watching a, a, a kind of a video report from a mission organization. 16,000 children go to bed hungry. Now, I think it's more than that, go to, than that, but are somehow affected by hunger today, right now. 
Amos wrote this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the one who plows will overtake the one who reaps. So not only is the imagery about the end of poverty, but it also seems to be that in God's kingdom there's an abundance that takes place. And by the way, this was written in a semi-desert context. So it says, you know, they would reap and then they would have to wait a long time for the rains to come because the ground wasn't very fertile. And so the writer uses imagery to talk about what the earth will be like when it is redeemed from the curse. He says the one that plows and the one that reap are going to bump into each other because there's, there's just such an abundance. And he goes on in that passage to say, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Now listen, that doesn't literally mean that Chardonnay is going to come flowing out of the Rockies, you know. But uh, it's an image of abundance. Here's how one author describes that abundance. Every day the stock market will end a little higher than the day before. The bull will dwell on Wall Street forever. The bear will visit it no more. The Fed will never have to raise the interest rates again. Little children in the Sudan will have carpeted bedrooms and private baths and their own automated teller machines in their bedrooms. The jobless rate will go down to zero and it will stay there and everybody will love what they do. <laughs> well, then there's the sphere of politics. And by the way, our history is pretty much the story of human conflict, isn't it? Isaiah 2.4 says, God will judge between the nations and will settle disputes from, from many peoples. Now just think about these words. He says, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. No more fighting, no more hatred. They won't use their swords anymore, but what they're going to do is reshape them into plows Steve Malone, who's a Christian church pastor, putting this in modern terms, says intercontinental ballistic missile silos will be converted into training tanks for inner city kids to learn scuba diving. And then there will be peace. There'll no such things as enemies. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, it says the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together. They will neither harm nor destroy, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And obviously here the author is using an imagery that, con imagery that conveys that, that the world could be at peace in the kingdom of God when it's fully realized. The lion will lie down with the lamb. So I took a stab at putting these into my own modern words. Dodger fans will play duck, duck, goose with San Francisco giant fans. <laughs> and the dog will make peace with the rabbit. And Raider fans will be no more. <laughs> no, just sorry about that. Just, just imagining, just imagining. Um, the Apostle John records his vision in Revelation chapter 21 that the street of the city of God, in other words, God's community, he says is paved with pure gold. And commentators suggest what he's using here is an imagery to say that the kingdom of God will be a place where the human desire for beauty is finally satisfied. No more pollution. No more run-down inner city buildings covered with graffiti and broken windows. No more concrete ghettos or barrios. 
John Ortberg has an interesting twist on this. He says, the creative genius that God has placed in people, made in his image, the image of the creator, would blossom and flourish, and every day will be a masterpiece, just beauty. The drawings little children give to their parents to hang on the refrigerator would each be a work of art like something from Michelangelo or Van Gogh or Picasso. And when I started thinking about this, a kid's work does look like a Picasso, but maybe they will then look like Michelangelo or Van Gogh. But anyway, he continues. When teenage girls in that city look at magazine covers and then look in the mirror, they would think to themselves, I look just right. Because society we have learned to see and celebrate the beauty that God sees when he looks at human beings made in his image, every one of them, whatever their shape or size or color, they would all look in the mirror and say, I look just right. Scripture writers also talk about the, the kingdom of God as being a place of no fear. Revelation 21 puts it like this, speaking of the holy city, on no day will its gates ever be shut. Now in biblical times, obviously there was no electricity. Nighttime created a vulnerability to a city to be attacked by their enemies, so that's why they always closed the city gates. Nighttime was often a time when crimes were committed, and it was a time of fear. And so it says, in the kingdom of God, those days will be over. We won't have any more gated communities or locked doors or, or security systems. Ortberg puts it this way. You'll never lose your keys because there won't be any keys. Squad cars will only pull over people to commend them for their good deeds. They will ask drivers, do you know why I pulled you over? And then they will write citations praising them for their civility and courtesy to other drivers. Squad cars will still pull into donut shops, but donuts will now be loaded with protein. <laughs> and Dr. Oz will write books saying it's a good idea to eat them at every meal. <laughs> so. Now there's another thing about the kingdom of God, and that is that it will redeem family life. In Luke 1.17 it says, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. No more separation. No more divorce, no more affairs, as we heard about this week by the former manager of the Texas Rangers. No more abuse, as we've been bombarded with this week with the NFL. No more unloved and unwanted children, as Joanne has described to us, these foster kids in the ministry that she works with. Here's Orberg's take on this. Members of a household will stay up late at night thinking of ways to serve each other. Children will insist that their little brother get the larger piece of cake. And I love this one. People will turn on Jerry Springer to watch shows with titles like, My Spouse Secretly Loves Me Twice As Much As I Thought He Did. <laughs> All right. And now perhaps the most beautiful words of all about the kingdom, Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then think about these words. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Would anybody here like to live in a world like that? No more Kleenex and no more funeral homes. 
Ezekiel puts it this way. I will remove, God says, the hearts of stone and replace them with the heart of flesh. No more cold and stubborn hearts. Here's a last quote on this from Wartburg. You'll never say something that you'll, later, that you'll later regret. You'll never do anything to be ashamed of or to feel guilty about. When you see somebody else's success or beauty or wealth, it won't even occur to you to be envious, but only to rejoice as if you had these things yourself. Friends, the Bible says that every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation will gather like brothers and sisters around the throne. And you who sit in these chairs, you will see the living God and there'll be no more doubt. And I would imagine no more questions. There will be inexpressible joy. Isaiah says, the trees of the field will clap their hands. And God will bring all of his creation into what theologians call their full redemptive potential. That's what it would look like when God's kingdom comes on earth. And the technical phrase that's often used by theologians to describe the kingdom of God is called the range of God's effective will. If you want a quick definition, it's this. It's the sphere in which whatever God desires is going to happen. That's God's kingdom. And if you're like me, I wonder, is this really real or is this just wishful thinking? Well, Jesus' whole message was about the reality of the kingdom. Right, that was his gospel. In the, in, in the gospel of Mark, he's summarizing Jesus when Jesus proclaims this in Mark 1.15. And this is what he says. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. And the good news, that's the gospel. He says, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, he's not saying it's getting closer in human history, he is the one life who has already been lived in the flesh, God's effective will. Jesus carried in his own person the reality of the kingdom of God. And everybody that saw him saw life that whatever God desired, that's what he chose to do. That's the gospel. And Jesus says now it's possible to live right now in the presence and the power of God. And that is an incredible offer by God. In fact, if you want that more than anything else, and I think you'd be uh, insane not to, then Jesus says, just follow me and be my faithfully devoted follower, and you will learn from me how to be in my Father's kingdom. Sometimes you say, or you hear people say a, a question like this, the power of vision. Well, Jesus casts the ultimate and the most compelling vision about the kingdom. And when men and women heard about it, and when they understood it, they devoted themselves to it. Read Acts. They sacrificed their possessions, they lived for it, and they died for it. And they did it with joy because they were just so grateful that the kingdom of God had been opened up to them. And that was Jesus' life and his teaching. I'll tell you something that Dale Bruner taught me. He was a professor from Whitworth College, and, and uh, I, I didn't go to Whitworth, but I sat under him in other settings. He said this, the primary significance of Jesus' miracles was to authenticate the presence of the kingdom of God on earth. In other words, the main reason that Jesus did miracles was so that people would know that the kingdom of God is right now a reality. 
once Jesus was talking about the fact that he had driven out demons and people were saying, oh, you're doing this by an evil spirit. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28, but if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the kingdom of God is already available to ordinary, fallen human beings like you and me. And one day, it's going to come in all of its fullness. And one day, there will be no other kingdoms. I'll tell you what part of, the, the part of this that's really hard to grasp, especially for people in Jesus' day, would be this. That there was Caesar's kingdom and there were kingdoms in other countries. And there were different economic powers. And everybody had their own little kingdoms, which in a sense were opposed to God. And there still are other kingdoms. That's what makes it hard for us to grasp and put our arms around. But one day there will be one kingdom and we will experience the fullness of that kingdom. So here's the big question. How will it happen? How will the kingdom come? How will this fallen earth ultimately get straight? And people have probably been doing it by human power for a long time. I mean, revolutions come and go. Governments are overthrown. But people still go on hating each other. Wars still break out. The human heart is still stone. Sometimes people think that if we're just clever enough and we can maybe get the economic system moving, then we can solve our problems. But that hasn't happened. Other people think that it's a political deal. Oddly enough, sometimes even church people think this. If we could just get our guy elected. So far, the kingdom of God has not arrived in the Oval Office. And I don't think it ever is going to. So how does the kingdom of God come to earth? Amazingly enough, Jesus says it starts with prayer. We begin by praying. Your kingdom come. You know, there's seven requests in the Lord's Prayer. And you can divide them into two kinds. And like I did last week, I put a, a sample study on, it's on the right-hand column of your study notes that might be helpful to you as you pray through this prayer this week. And uh, each week I'll put a different kind of worksheet in there for you to work through praying it. But the first three requests are you. Your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then the next four petitions are about us. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Don't bring us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And those first three requests are really about the kingdom. Your kingdom come. And the one before that is, explains it, the kingdom is where God's name is hallowed and the kingdom is also part of what follows it, that God's will is followed. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So never start, stop doing the things that the king wants. And that's the kingdom. It's where his name is hallowed and his will is followed. Now, let me try to land the plane here because I know I got to, but... Uh, Part of my own personal blindness and perhaps part of the struggle that I face with this prayer, praying for the kingdom, is sometimes I wonder, does it really do much good? The kingdom comes when people pray. So Jesus asked you and me, let's be kingdom prayers and I want to give you some direction on that for your prayers these next weeks. Because we, we said last week we're going to master this prayer together. And I want to ask you to start praying your kingdom come every day for the next couple of weeks. First, pray about the kingdom coming in your own life. 
God, your kingdom come, your will be done, just starting right here in this tiny little piece of kingdom that's called me. And that's the hardest prayer to pray. I think it was the hardest prayer for Jesus to pray. Remember when he's in the garden and he says, Father, if this cup can pass, let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now to pray the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Part of that means that maybe I'm going to suffer. And so you're saying, God, I'm willing to endure what I need to. It includes that, but not just that. It goes beyond that. It means, God, may I become the kind of person who does your will from my heart. May your kingdom come in my life. May I be a kingdom bearer. See, we just don't want to be kingdom prayers. We want to be kingdom bearers. So let me ask you, what would it mean for the kingdom to come and for God's will to be done in your life this next week? What would it mean for God's will to be done relationally? Maybe it means sacrifice. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you're in a relationship and you know it's not honoring God. You know it's a relationship that's not in God's will and you ought to stop it. And the truth is, you've not been willing to stop it. So this is character time. And I'm going to ask you, will you pray, all right, God, your will be done in my life in this relationship. Your will be done, not mine, in my children. Your will be done in my marriage. Your will be done in my friendships. Your will be done in my career. Your will be done And may I bring the reality of your kingdom into my relationships. God, make me a kingdom kind of servant. Make me a kingdom kind of encourager. Make me a kingdom kind of confronter. Make me a kingdom kind of friend. And then let me ask you, what would it mean financially for you to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done in my financial life. Maybe for some of you it means that you need to Make some serious changes in your spending. In fact, if debt is a part of your existence right now, I think you ought to go to the Financial Peace University. Or is it called the university? Financial Peace University. On Sunday nights. I've talked to numerous people who this has radically changed their life and released so much pressure off of them because they followed God's principles for, for their money. Maybe it will mean some serious change in your giving. I don't know. Most of you know that as a church, we're looking at the biggest financial challenge of our lives as we unzip from Bel Air on November 1st. But I want to tell you something. I believe this with all my heart. If you, who are the core of Water's Edge, will pray sincerely, God, when it comes to the resources that you have so generously given me, your will be done. Your will be done, God, in my financial life. Then whatever God wants for this church, I believe we'll have it. And then move on to pray, God, may your kingdom come to the people in my relational world. May they come to my children. May they come to the people that I work with. May they come to my neighborhood. And I want to tell you, friends, there is power in that pray, prayer. Pray for people in your world that God's kingdom would come into their life. I want to challenge you over these next couple of weeks as you pick up the newspaper to pray for the conflict and the tremendous unrest that's going on in our world. When you pick up your newspaper and you read it, pray for our country. May your kingdom come. Maybe you pray for 
El Segundo. May your kingdom come in Manhattan Beach, in Hermosa Beach, in Torrance. May your kingdom come in Washington. May it come in Hollywood. May it come in Wall Street. May it come in Africa. May it come in Iraq. You know, friends, I, I want to tell you part of why I'm so convicted about this series of messages on prayer is that I think one of the saddest things that I could imagine is if someday God were to say to Water's Edge, you know what, you guys? You had a lot of great programs and you had a lot of services and you were kingdom builders, but you forgot one thing. You forgot to be kingdom prayers. And I think that would be the saddest thing. So pray. Pray that God's kingdom will come and his will will be done in your life, in the lives of people around you, and in the whole world that God so loves. So let's pray. So our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.